Hey, Keith here. When we started live from the lounge a couple years ago, it took a little outlay of cash for the website, the RSS feeder, and our cool logo. Everyone else has worked for free. I work for free, and does too. Double Batch Daddy, Matt, Carol, John, Charles, and all of the actors and musicians have graciously donated their time and talents to the lounge. I'm happy to report that thanks to your contributions, we're getting close to having our startup costs paid off. And I'm hoping we can start to share a little something with the artists who make this podcast so unique. If you like what you're hearing, I hope you'll join Hope from Hollywood, Lynn from Northridge, and our most faithful supporter, Shadow from Fairlawn, Ohio, in helping to keep Live from the Lounge coming your way season after season. Just head to Live from the Lounge podcast and hit the donate button. Thanks. Hey there. Welcome to the Lounge. I'm your host, Keith Farley, sporting a subtle orange glow from all the pumpkin spice I've ingested, wishing you a cool and colorful fall with a collection of stories, songs, and conversations, all intuitively designed to help you groove with the rhythms of the season. This month's Lounge is all about taking stock. Double Batch Daddy presents a new song about writing a new song and finding connection in the process. Rose Portillo from the animated movie Encanto stops by to share the healing magic that happens when we make time to honor those who have passed on. Ruby Farley and John Ballinger think about the things we used to do. In honor of Halloween, I'll read a very scary story about a very scary guy who makes a very scary deal with a very scary spirit. It's pretty scary. And later, we'll take a minute to look back on the year to celebrate our accomplishments and learn from our missteps. So, here we are. We're getting ready to fall back, and that means the sun goes down an hour earlier than usual, and we venture from seemingly endless sunshine to the dark time of the year. Sunrise in Los Angeles came at 6.59 this morning, and it sets at 6.17 tonight. The harvest is in, and we celebrate with a huge stein of Oktoberfest beer and maybe a polka or two. Apples, pears, and figs are in season, alongside a wide variety of potatoes and squashes. If you really want to feel the fall, may I suggest making a homemade applesauce? If you've got a crock pot, there's no better way to get the house smelling like the season than to slice up a bag of apples, cover them with cinnamon, nutmeg, and cloves, and let them do their thing on low heat. Sprinkle with a little granola for crunch, maybe a scoop of vanilla ice cream, and you'll discover the culinary equivalent of a comfy sweater. If the year were a day, October is the coming home from work time. It's time to settle down from the stress of the day, maybe grab a cocktail or an appetizer, and unburden yourself. How was your day? It's a fair question to ask as the sun goes down. And how was your year? Is a fair question to ask in October. So let's look back, shall we? Way back in January, I introduced the idea of taking your plans all the way to Topeka. Remember that? Double Batch Daddy even created a theme song for it. Let's take this all the way. Come on now, all the way. Ooh, all the way, all 
was just a thought experiment to illustrate how a dream can become a plan and how a plan can become a reality. But as I started exploring the concept of an overnight train trip to a blues festival in Topeka on the July 4th weekend, I began to think that going all the way to Topeka might be something that was actually worth doing. But, as we discovered in our April showers episode, setbacks can occur. In my case, I was invited to attend a convention in Pasadena that weekend, and the trip to Topeka was snuffed out. My business goals have been developed over decades of dreaming, planning, and executing, and I feel like I'm in the summer months of my career, where the work I'm doing is more about tending and cultivating the growth that's already happening more than planting new seeds. Health was more my focus this year, and I have to admit the result was a bit of a mixed bag. I'd planned to exercise and eat my way to a trim and fit body by July 4th. In March, I took that order quite literally and started using my daily dog walks as an opportunity to march in place while our shaggy was sniffing about and marking the neighborhood. I became known among my neighbors as that marching guy, and it wasn't long before the marching led to jogging in place, and when I didn't see the weight coming off in April, I decided to try the Whole30 plan and only eat meat, fruit, veggies, and potatoes for the month of May. No sugar, no booze, no grains, no dairy. I enjoyed it, actually, and went down 10 pounds. In June, though, the storms came. I got hit with a nasty cold, and July brought a bout of COVID-19 and the loss of our sweet shaggy dog. My convenient exercise opportunity went away with shaggy, and the delicious backyard summer foods added some of the weight back. I'm still five pounds down, and I know that there's not much I can do about the colds and flus that make exercise impossible, but I also know that I need to shift my reliance on dog walks to building in time in my day to move around a bit. I can also modify my food intake while being entirely aware that the holidays are coming and all bets are off once the turkey hits the table. So that's my year in a nutshell. How was yours? We'd love to hear from you on Twitter or Facebook or at our email address, livefromthelounge640 at gmail.com. Tell us about all the things, the things you're doing, the things you'd like to do, and the things you used to do. Every night I sit here by my window, window. staring at the lonely avenue. avenue, watching lovers holding hands. Thinking about things Like a walk in the park things. Like a kiss in the dark things. Like a sailboat ride What about the night we cried? Things, things like lovers vow things. things we don't do now Thinking about those things we used to do Talking about things Like a walk in the park things. Like a kiss in the dark things. Like a sailboat ride What about the night 
cried, we cried on things like love is bad things that we don't do now. Thinking about those things we used to do. I can hear the jukebox softly playing, and the face I see each day belongs to you. Thinking about things like walking the park, things like kissing the dog, things like a sailboat ride. What about the night we cried? Things like lovers vow, things we don't do now. Thinking about those things we used to do. You got me thinking about those things we used to do. You got me thinking about those things we used to do. With Halloween just around the corner, I thought I'd share with you one of my favorite scary stories. But before we begin, let me take a moment to warn you that we're not holding back here. The next 16 minutes and 40 seconds most definitely contain scenes that are not for the faint of heart. If you find stories about the fine line between life and death disturbing, you'll want to jump ahead. This is your final warning. Okay, here we go. Midnight, by Jack Snow. Between the hour of eleven and midnight, John Ware made ready to perform the ceremony that would climax the years of homage he had paid to the dark powers of evil. Tonight, he would become a part of that essence of dread that roams the night hours. At the last stroke of midnight. His consciousness would leave his body and unite with that which shuns the light, and is all depravity and evil. Then he would roam the world with this midnight elemental, and for one hour savor all the evil that this being is capable of inspiring in human souls. John Ware had lived so long among the shadows of evil that his mind had become tainted. And through the channel of his thoughts, his soul had been corrupted by the poison of the dark powers with which he consorted. There was scarcely a forbidden book of shocking ceremonies and nameless teachings that Ware had not consulted and pored over in the long hours of the night. When certain guarded books he desired were unobtainable, he had shown no hesitation in stealing them. Nor had Ware stopped with mere reading and studying these books. He had descended to the ultimate depths and put into practice the ceremonies, rites, and black sorceries that stained the pages of the volumes. Often these practices had required human blood and human lives, and here again Ware had not hesitated. He had long ago lost count of the number of innocent persons who had mysteriously vanished from the face of the earth, victims of his insatiable craving for knowledge of the evil that dwells in the dark, furtively, when the powers of light are at their nadir. John Ware had traveled to all the strange and little-known parts of the earth. 
He had tricked and wormed secrets out of priests and dignitaries of ancient cults and religions, of whom existence the world of clean daylight has no inkling. Africa, the West Indies, Tibet, China, where knew them all, and they held no secret whose knowledge he had not violated. By devious means, Ware had secured admission to certain private institutions and homes behind whose facades were confined individuals who were not mad in the outright sense of the everyday definition of the word, but who, given their freedom, would loose nightmare horror on the world. Some of these prisoners were so curiously shaped and formed that they had been hidden away since childhood. In a number of instances, their vocal organs were so alien that the sounds they uttered could not be considered human. Nevertheless, John Ware had been heard to converse with them. In John Ware's chamber stood an ancient clock, tall as a human being and abhorrently fashioned from age-yellowed ivory. Its head was that of a woman in an advanced state of disillusion. Around the skull, from which shreds of ivory flesh hung, were Roman numerals marked by two death's head beetles, which, engineered by intricate machinery in the clock, crawled slowly around the perimeter of the skull to mark the hours. Nor did this clock tick as does an ordinary clock. Deep within its woman's bosom sounded a dull, regular thud, disturbingly similar to the beating of a human heart. The malevolent creation of an unknown sorcerer of the dim past, this eerie clock had been the property of a succession of warlocks, alchemists, wizards, satanists, and like devotees of forbidden arts, each of whom had invested the clock with something of his own evil existence, so that a dark and revolting nimbus hung about it, and it seemed to exude a loathsome animus from its repellently human form. It was to this clock that John Ware addressed himself at the first stroke of midnight. The clock did not announce the hour in the fashion of other clocks, During the hour, its ticking sounded faint and dull, scarcely distinguishable above ordinary sounds. But at each hour, the clicking rose to a muffled thud, sounding like a human heartbeat heard through a stethoscope. With these ominous thuds, it marked the hours, seeming to intimate that each beat of the human heart narrows that much more the span of mortal life. Now the clock sounded the midnight hour. Thud, thud, thud. Before it stood John Ware, his body traced with cabalistic markings in a black pigment which he had prepared according to an ancient and noxious formula. As the clock thudded out the midnight hour, John Ware repeated an incantation 
which had it not been for his devouring passion for evil, would have caused even him to shudder at the mere sounds of the contorted vowels. To his mouthing of the unhuman phrases, he performed a pattern of motions with his body and limbs, which was an unearthly grotesquerie of a dance. Thud, 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 the beat sounded for the twelfth time and then subsided to a dull, muffled, murmur which was barely audible in the silence of the chamber. The body of John Ware sank to the thick rug and lay motionless. The spirit was gone from it. At the last stroke of the hour of midnight, it had fled. With a great thrill of exultation, John Ware found himself outside in the night. He had succeeded. That which he had summoned had accepted him. And now, for the next hour, he would feast to his fill on unholy evil. Ware was conscious that he was not alone as he moved effortlessly through the night air. He was accompanied by a being which he perceived only as an amorphous darkness. A darkness that was deeper and more absolute than the inky night. A darkness that was a vacuum or blank in the color spectrum. Ware found himself plunging suddenly earthward. The walls of a building flashed past him, and an instant later, he was in a sumptuously furnished living room, where stood a man and a woman. Ware felt a strong bond between himself and the woman. Her thoughts were his. He felt as she did. A wave of terror was enveloping him, flowing to him from the woman for the man standing before her held a revolver in his hand. He was about to pull the trigger. John Ware lived through an agony of fear in those few moments that the helpless woman cringed before the man. And then a shapeless darkness settled over the man. His eyes glazed dully. Like an automaton, he pressed the trigger, and the bullet crashed into the woman's heart. John Ware died as she died. Once again, Ware was soaring through the night, the black being close at his side. He was shaken by the experience. What could it mean? How had he come to be identified so closely with the tortured consciousness of the murdered woman? Again, Ware felt himself plummeting earthward. This time... He was in a musty cellar in the depths of a vast city's tenement section. A man lay chained to a crude wooden table. Over him stood two creatures of loathsome and sadistic countenance. Then John Ware was the man on the table. He knew, he thought, he felt everything that the captive felt. He saw a black shadow settle over the two evil-looking men. Their eyes glazed. Their lips parted slightly as saliva drooled from them. The men made use of an assortment of crude instruments, knives, scalpels, pincers, and barbed hooks in a manner which in ten short minutes reduced the helpless body before them from a screaming human being to a whimpering, senseless thing covered with wounds and rivulets of blood. John Ware suffered as the victim suffered. At last, the tortured one slipped into unconsciousness. 
An instant later, John Ware was moving swiftly through the night sky. At his side was the black being. It had been terrible. Ware had endured agony that he had not believed the human body was capable of suffering. Why? Why had he been chained to the consciousness of the man on the torture table? Swiftly, Ware and his companion soared through the night, moving ever westward. John Ware felt himself descending again. He caught a fleeting glimpse of a lonely farmhouse with a single lamp glowing in one window. Then, he was in an old-fashioned country living room. In a wheelchair, an aged man sat dozing. At his side, near the window, stood a table on which burned an oil lamp. A dark shape hovered over the sleeping man. Shuddering in his slumber, the man flung out one arm restlessly. It struck the oil lamp, sending it crashing to the floor, where it shattered, and a pool of flame sprang up instantly. The aged cripple awoke with a cry and made an effort to wheel his chair from the flames, but it was too late. Already the carpet and floor were burning, and now the man's clothing and the robe that covered his legs were afire. Instinctively, the victim threw up his arms to shield his face, and then he screamed piercingly again and again. John Ware felt everything that the old man felt. He suffered the inexpressible agony of being consumed alive by flames. And then he was outside in the night. Far below and behind him, the house burned like a torch in the distance. Ware glanced fearfully at the shadow that accompanied him as they sped on at tremendous speed, ever westward. Once again, Ware felt himself hurtling down through the night. Where to this time? What unspeakable torment was he to endure now? All was dark about him. He glimpsed no city or abode as he flashed to earth. About him was only silence and darkness. Then... Like a wave engulfing his spirit came a torrent of fear and dread. He was striving to push something upward. Panic thoughts consumed him. He would not die. He wanted to live. He would escape. He writhed and twisted in his narrow confines, his fists beating on the surface above him. It did not yield. John Ware knew that he was linked with the consciousness of a man who had been prematurely buried. Soon the victim's fists were dripping with blood as he ineffectually clawed and pounded at the lid of the coffin. As time is measured, it didn't last long. The exertions of the doomed man caused him quickly to exhaust the small amount of air in the coffin, and he soon smothered to death. John Ware experienced that, too. But the final obliteration and crushing of the hope that burned in the man's bosom probably was the worst of all. Where was again, soaring through the night. His soul shuddered as he grasped the final, unmistakable significance of the night's experiences. He, he was to be the victim, the sufferer throughout this long hour of midnight. He had thought that by accompanying the dark being around the earth, he would share in the savoring of all the evils that flourish in the midnight hour. He was participating, but not as he had expected. Instead, he was the victim, the cringing, tormented one. 
Perhaps this dark being he had summoned was jealous of its pleasures. Or perhaps it derived an additional intensity of satisfaction by adding John Ware's consciousness to those of its victims. Ware was descending again. Was there no resisting the force that flung him earthward? He was completely helpless before the power he had summoned. What now? What new terror would he experience? On and on, ever westward through the night, John Ware endured horror after horror. He died again and again, each time in a more fearsome manner. He was subjected to revolting tortures and torments as he was linked with victim after victim. He knew the frightening nightmare of human minds tottering on the abyss of madness. All that his black and unholy and is visited upon mankind he experienced as he roamed the earth with the midnight being. Would it never end? Only the thought that these sixty minutes would pass sustained him. But it did not end. It seemed an eternity had gone by. Such suffering could not be crowded into a single hour. It must be days since he had left his body. Days, nights, sixty minutes, one hour. John Ware was struck with the realization of terrific impact. It seemed to be communicated to him from the dark being at his side. Horribly clear did that being make the simple truth. John Ware was lost. Weeks, even months might have passed since he had left his body. Time for him had stopped still. John Ware was eternally chained to the amorphous black shape and was doomed to exist thus horribly forever suffering endless and revolting madness, torture, and death through eternity, he had stepped into that band of time known as Midnight and was caught, trapped hopelessly, doomed to move with the grain of time endlessly around the earth. For as long as the earth spins beneath the sun, one side of it is always dark, and in the darkness... Midnight dwells forever. You never know the twists and turns that life will take, especially if you've chosen a career in the arts. Hopefully, you have people around who are willing to lend their support and who are even willing to carry you when you feel like you can't take another step. The Actors Fund is an organization that does just that. It provides stability and resiliency to artists throughout their careers. Services provided by your generous donations to the fund include emergency financial assistance, affordable housing, health care and insurance counseling, senior care, secondary career development, and more. For more information about the Actors Fund or to make a tax-deductible donation, go to theactorsfund.org. You might know Rose Portillo from her recent turn as Senora Guzman, mother of the hunky boyfriend Mariano in Disney's Encanto. 
I know her from her work with Luis Valdez in Zoot Suit, in which she played Della in the original production in 1978, and came back to play Della's mom, Dolores, in the recent revival. In addition to being a superb actress, Rose is a wonderful artist, and like all the best artists, her art informs her life, and her life informs her art to the point where art and life entwine in a magical dance where the give and take of the two become seamless and sublime. I invited Rose to return to the lounge because she'd been a lot on my mind lately, and really. Any excuse to spend time with Rose Portillo is one I'm going to take. Welcome back to the the lounge. I am so grateful that you made time in your super jam-packed schedule to take a little minute to talk about this time of year. The theme of this month's podcast is looking back and taking stock. And you just kept coming into my mind as Mm. I was thinking about people to talk to because we talked last year as a kind of an introduction to the Dia de los Muertos and the ofrenda and all of that. And I just thought I need to go a little deeper and I want to go a little deeper with you about how you use the ofrenda to look back, to take stock, to make peace with relatives um, and challenges in your life. Tell us a little bit about this home that you live in? I live in the house I was born into, which means I was not born in the house. I did go, my mother went to a hospital. (laughs) (laughs) This is where I came back uh, with my, my father's parents, my mom and me. And we lived in this house for seven years. My grandparents remained in this house every weekend, every weekend which was often a comfort, and then it became a burden. My great-grandmother and my godparents, every weekend they came over. So every Sunday, we were together. Everybody in the house. Yeah. And so... What were the days like? What were those days like? Well, that was fun because because my, um, my godparents were fun and the noise of the house was great. And um, my aunt and my mom were big laughers. Um, my grandfather loved the, having the company around. Um, yeah, he was a scenic painter for Paramount and Columbia. Mm. So um, he, he made a decent living and that's why they were able to move from uh, Wood Flap House to, to this house. And so that was great. And then the the weekdays, in the beginning, everybody worked except my aunt. So I would go to Lincoln Heights and she would raise me. And that was great fun. My great-grandmother scared me a little bit because she was just very, very wrinkled and didn't never, hardly ever spoke, you know, always, and always was in black. So, so that was a little scary. So there's a rich history of your family being in this house. Correct. And I'm assuming... Many, if not all of those folks have passed on. All of them. All of them are are gone. And what is your experience with their presence in the in the home now? So my my long story of uh, setup is that once I was alone with my grandmother, it was not pleasant. She was a bitter woman. 
So, um, and we fought. As I grew, uh, we fought. And she was very manipulative. And so I put a lot of distance between us. So I didn't want to come back into the house because I was afraid of her spirit in the house. But circumstances were such where my mother went, the house is there. And the only option if you don't go into it is for it to be sold. So I slept on it and then went, she's right. What I actually need is um, a reckoning and a healing. Yeah. And the only way I can actually heal is to transform the place. And how did so, that how did that begin? So um, it it began with paint, <laughs> emptying everything out, uh-huh. and um, the very pristine colors just changed into very bold colors. There have been many moments in in my life where someone has said, "I feel like there's a presence here. I feel like there's." A woman who knows this house very well and knows you and is very confused by what's going on, but she's intrigued and happy. So I thought, well, that's really interesting because I feel at peace with her now. Was there a, um, was it a gradual process or did you feel that there was a turning point moment? where that happened? The turning was in living my life as myself on a daily basis and ignoring any feelings of judgment. So I would say that um, my awareness was always heightened and um, I already had the practice of Day of the Dead when I moved back into this house and I always honored anyone who gave me difficulty was always honored, is always honored on, on the altar. Tell me about that tradition of the, of the Dia de los Muertos and the building of ofrendas. So there are two days um, of the Dias de los Muertos, the first and the second. And the first is designated for children, saints, and angels. And the second is for all the rest of us, <laughs> you know, sinners, <laughs> all, the, all the sinners. I think of it as um, always you're, you're honoring those that are close to you and have taken a part in making you who you are. But to be truthful, all the difficulties and the traumas also make us who we are. So that needs to be acknowledged. And I think beyond acknowledgement is an honoring. And what I have come to recognize in this very long, slow journey with my grandmother, and I'll include my father in that, is that it's not over. And, and the good news is that healing is still possible, and that includes them. There have been moments where I knew she was happy and I knew we were at peace. And then I knew she wasn't leaving because she was afraid. 
Oh, wow. So, wow. so I have a particular ghost story <laughs> as well where I had to banish her. And I, I went several years not putting her photograph up, not welcoming her back, welcoming with my heart, but not really not allowing her spirit into the house. Yeah. Because she didn't know how to come and go. She only knew how to stay. And that was going to be hurtful. Right. Eventually to right. me. It was going to keep me in place. So the practice uh -huh. of the ofrenda. So the practice of the ofrenda, tra traditionally you're honoring, you're honoring ancestors. You put up a photograph. You put up for us the marigold we burn incense. We light candles. And when it's someone you know, you you want things that they enjoyed, think that things that they loved, you know. What was the booze they liked? It goes on the table, you know. What yeah. was, we, we cook foods that are traditional because we all grew up eating them. So it, that's a welcoming too. It is not a mourning. It is, it is an embracing. This is a lovely thing that um, that a relative said to me. And she said, here's why I want you to do it. And here's why I want you to let us come again. I brought my son several times and he just was caught up in the, you know, he got caught up in the pageantry of mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. as, as a boy. Then he was in high school and a tragedy happened. And he, without asking, brought a photograph of his best friend who had died. Yeah. And he put it on the altar. And she said, and every year he comes and he looks at the altar and he sees the photograph. And he sees his grandmother. He sees his great-grandmother. And this offers him a timeline an acknowledgement of people who cared for him that are integrated into this extended family, this extended chosen family and actual family. And it makes ancestry tangible. Are you working on an ofrenda this year? So I am. Um, Tell me about that. This year, a very stalwart organizer, community member, um, passed on, she, Issa K. Mexon. So I was invited to do an altar at um, Grand Park. And I thought, oh, I can't do what I do at home there. Right. I need to be very selective. Issa um, came from Ukraine in the 30s mm. uh, as, a, as a child. So I know that about her. I know her more um, as a, you know, resident of Echo Park, uh, uh, always fighting with City Hall, always fighting the good fight, always annoying, being very annoying. Uh, <laughs> but, but we all love her because of what she's about. Mm -hmm. So um, I decided to honor her at Grand Park. And, and the, when I was talking to the curator and, and I went for the walkthrough and to pick her, my location, I said, um, she's got to be facing City Hall. That's all I know. She has to literally face City Hall. So we found the spot. And and um, first of all, it's a beautiful view of City Hall she has. Then we turned around just to see it, 
you know, check out the space itself and what are going to be the issues and blah, blah. She is right next to a plaque honoring the Ukrainians who came in the 30s. Yeah. I mean, it it just like, yeah, this is exactly where she needs to be. She was all about recycling. So uh, a puppet master and I um, got together and out of recycled materials, we've her favorite bird was the hummingbird. So we've mm. made hummingbirds. So there will be hummingbirds for her. And she had given another, because she adored artists. So I called this artist for help. And she said, I can't help you. But I have something she gave me that I don't know what to do with. And I think you will know what to do. So if you don't mind. When she was 15 or 14, um, her parents sent her to a summer camp and she took art classes and on the back of a receipt book, she drew in pencil. And there are all these beautiful abstract drawings. It's, It's a receipt book and it's like you just grab whatever's around to do what you are compelled to do. So she actually was an artist who decided politics were more important. Yeah. So I'm going to try and pull some of those up and instead and that and make that the cloth. Beautiful. I mean, once again, like just going and being open and knowing a little bit about what you want. Yes. And then discovering all of those. Yes things that start to come to you when you make your intention known. That intentionality is what allows you to recognize when things show up. There's no wrong way to do it. So if someone hears this story of of your home and this altar and this tradition, where can someone begin? What advice would you have to someone who thinks like, I would like to begin this tradition in my own home? Just sit with memory. And then if you don't have a photograph, just write the name down and, you know, find a little countertop or table and make it pretty, make it um, special. And they'll tell you what they would like. So to be listening as well. Yeah. Yeah. Listening is huge. Yeah. In a minute. We're going to talk about post-mortems as they relate to our goals and dreams. But this time of year, it's right and good to think about our relationships with family members who are literally post-mortem. Can you make a space in your home, make it pretty, to place a picture or just a piece of paper with the name of a relative who's passed on? Can you listen for their voice? Can you welcome them to take a healthy place in your life? Or might they need to be disinvited for now so that they can learn to come and go freely without hanging on in a disruptive way? The endeavor can be as simple or as elaborate as you wish, and it can be as pleasant or profound as you can imagine. We hope you'll take time to share your ofrendas with us at livefromthelounge640 at gmail.com or on our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram feeds. I'm not alone 
Here I find my voice singing these words to a song I don't yet know. So lend me your ear while I'm still breathing, and I'll sing you the song as it unfolds. I'm not alone. Let me start this again, and I'll try not to sound so lonely. You don't know how good it is to hear your voice, 'cause it's all thanks to you. I'm not alone. Surveys. I'm done with starred reviews. How was your ride with Bert? Was he talkative? Was the car clean? Please stay on the line for a brief two-question survey at the end of your call. How was the video quality of your meeting? It's possible you'll receive a follow-up call from my supervisor. I really hope you'll tell him I produced five-star service for you today. Are you enjoying this app? How satisfied are you with the link that brought you here? Thumbs up, thumbs down, like, heart, frown, cry, smile. I'm over it. I am done. 
rating products and services so that our computer overlords can feed my data into an algorithm that will shove ads at me as I surf the web. That said, I am a big fan of the postmortem. It's important to take time to take stock of where we are, how we got here, what went right and what went wrong so we can do better in the future. Postmortem literally means after death. It's defined in the medical profession as a process used to determine what it was that killed this or that body. In business, the postmortem is a process often employed at the end of a project to determine what went well and what didn't so that new policies can be instituted to make similar projects in the future run more smoothly. It's a useful tool, but it's not without its dangers. For a while, I belonged to a theater company that did a postmortem after each show we presented. It started well enough, with folks cheering the successes and addressing the failures of our little troupe. It helped us organize and streamline the production process. But it wasn't long before two interesting wrinkles started to appear in the fabric of our community. There were those who just couldn't abide any criticisms at all of their beloved company. They were firmly invested in the idea that we could do no wrong. Everything we did had to be great because we were all great and how could anything possibly be not great? On the other side, there were those who used the post-mortem process to advance their own personal agendas by subtly undermining the contributions of others. It wasn't long before we decided to do away with post-mortems, much to the detriment of the company itself. If I may render a post-mortem on post-mortems, when they're run well, they have the power to enhance community and increase effectiveness. And they tend to fail when they lack someone with experience navigating the process. The CEO, senior pastor, artistic director, or shift supervisor are lousy moderators of postmortems because they have a reputation to protect. And really, how likely are you to address the fact that you're doing the work of three people for one salary with the person who holds in their hand the power to relieve you of that position? Similarly, the savvy employee can undermine the authority of supervisors in many ways that have less to do with making the community function more effectively than with advancing their own position within it. Therefore, a disinterested third party whose only mission is to assess what's working and what isn't, and who has experience with the potential pitfalls of the process, is essential. It's the same when we take stock of our own strengths and weaknesses, isn't it? For inside us are competing interests, each with their own agenda. There's the me that doesn't want to hear that I'm anything but great. They live alongside the me who's been told that it's selfish to ask for what I want. And then there's the me that is eager to dwell on each mistake. The me that screams for me to quit when things get difficult. There's mischievous me, devout me, judgmental me, accepting me, family me, public me, and countless other me's who all have an opinion about how I'm doing. The author P.D. Uspensky has observed, we are not one, we are many. We have not one permanent and unchangeable I or ego. We are always different. One moment we are one, another moment we are another, the third moment a third, and so on, almost without end. 
Is it not wise, then, when the postmortem turns personal to seek out a professional mediator to address the many me's within? In my mid-twenties, I had a relationship come to an end due to mistakes I'd made along the way. It started me looking at all the relationships in my life and the ways that I'd sabotaged some of them in similar ways. I fell into a deep depression. I lost weight. I couldn't sleep. I felt adrift and aimless and haunted. I'd been carrying on without a single thought to the consequences my actions might have. I was just doing what felt good to me in the moment. I've since learned that there's a scientific explanation for this. It seems that the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that considers consequences, isn't fully developed until we're about 25 or so. Before that, we're more likely to take actions without thinking about how they'll play out down the road. That's why you can't rent a car until you're 25, and your insurance premiums go down significantly after your 25th birthday. An amateur astrologist friend described this time of life as the Saturn return. Evidently, it takes Saturn 28 Earth years to circle the sun. The first Saturn cycle of our life corresponds with the learning phase, the second is the work phase, and the third is the resting phase. He explained that a review and a test comes in the last two years of each Saturn cycle, and that's where I was at age 26. In order to pass the Saturn test, I needed to look back, identify my mistakes, correct them, and move on, lest I carry them with me for the rest of my life. In short, I needed to perform a post-mortem on my youth. And in the spirit of any good post-mortem, I sought out a professional to help me through the process. Taking on a therapist just as my prefrontal cortex was finishing its formation helped me to think about the consequences of my actions and understand and address the motivations for those actions that were hurting me and others in my life. I grew more confident in my abilities, and I worked on understanding my weaknesses and accepting the gifts that come from working through them. October is postmortem month. It's a great time to look back over the year to celebrate accomplishments and identify struggles and setbacks. We started the year with a dream, remember? An idea of what we wanted the year to be. We let go of habits and preconceptions that were holding us back and we moved forward, carefully tending to and protecting our dreams as they grew. We weathered the unexpected storms and watched as our dreams began to grow and flourish. We were ready when things got hectic, and we put in the extra hours to reap the rewards of our efforts. How did you do? What went well? What didn't? Can you accept your mistakes without judging yourself too harshly? Can you celebrate your successes without falling in love with yourself too much? Do you even see your successes? Your stumbles? Is there someone you trust to share this with? A rabbi, a therapist, a friend, or an advisor? As the year rides off into the sunset, it's important to take a beat, look back on the road we've traveled, and take stock of the ups and downs along the way. And remember that life is a constant journey from birth through growth into withering death and new life. It happens every day every season, 
and every lifetime. Put simply, your accomplishments are worthy of celebration and your faults are an invitation to grow. Accepting yourself as you are, where you are, is the key that opens the door to gratitude, also known as Thanksgiving. But we'll talk more about that next time. That's our lounge. We wish you the pumpkin spiciest of Octobers, and we invite you to share with us some of the bounty you've had this year. If you get something out of this podcast, if you find something inspiring or useful or funny or spooky, head over to livefromtheloungepodcast.com, hit the donate button, and make a contribution. All the contributions this month are going directly to the artists who've been so instrumental in bringing this podcast to you month in and month out. Let me introduce them to you. Here's the who did what. Our lounge is produced by Ann Kloss Farley. Double Batch Daddy wrote and performed I Am Not Alone. John Ballinger arranged and performed Things. You also heard him sing it with Ruby Farley. Charles Dayton created the sound design for The Big Question. And I'm your host, Keith Farley. We'll be back in a month or so with another collection of stories, songs, and conversations, all intuitively designed to help you to learn, to love, to lounge. <laughs>